welcome to episode five of Second Self. This week's guest is writer Sarah Maria Griffin. Sarah is the author of three books, Not Lost, a story about leaving home, which is a particularly pertinent read on the theme of constructing oneself rather than accepting the self you were given. Sparen found parts and other words for smoke. Sarah is my friend, and therefore I'm probably slightly biased. However, she's an incredibly unusual writer and a very unusual mind. The purpose of making this podcast has been to have conversations with people who break consensus, go in their own direction, and attempt to live in a way that's authentic to themselves. One of the things that I admire about Sarah as a person, and we talk about this a little bit in the podcast, is that early on in our friendship, I came to the realization, and she did too, I think, that we actually don't agree on a lot, probably, ideologically speaking. And this has absolutely no relevance for either of us in the context of the friendship. And I feel like there should be more friendships like that, I want to foster more friendships like that in my own life. That's just a single manifestation of the many ways that Sarah is a unique and interesting person, but I think it says an awful lot about her. In this conversation, we talk about living authentically or trying to as an individual, leaving behind the teenage self who it's tempting to look back on with scorn or derision Um, recognising that she was, man, she was a dick, (laughs) but also feeling empathy toward her and carrying forward what is useful to us now from that person. We talk about science fiction, philosophy, writing, Sarah's unique process when it comes to creating work and art, and a bunch more. Um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I did. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? We've been talking for ages. Let's pretend we haven't. <laughs> we're very warmed up now. We're very cozy. We did a whole episode before we hit record. Um, how have you been doing? I've been doing good. I'm glad the world's opening up again from my weird mountain apartment. I uh, can see all the leaves changing colours, which I'm really appreciating. Everything is turning gold. Um, so I'm holding up. I'm holding up well. How are things at home? I am absolutely like aching to get back and I I planned to in December but I actually saw you on my last trip home we had dinner together and that was March 2020 which feels like a hundred years ago that was a really different time and we were Mm. all different oh my god that was March 2020 wasn't it because I was I, I know exactly where I was coming from yeah Ireland is feeling um confident is what I would say I've been out a few times out out um, I did, in fact, once dance in a crowd of other people and it was very moving <laughs> and beautiful. And then I spent the whole next day in a tightly wound ball um, trying to convince myself I had not received coronavirus from <laughs> dancing outdoors with strangers. Um, I'm going to hesitantly say we're doing all right, but we're going into winter. So I feel like there's a little mania in the air of everyone trying to experience a normal for a second just in case. 
Yeah, I think it's um, we're we're a bit sort of further ahead in terms of the ability to do stuff mm. here. Um, and it's always interesting, I think, how culturally different sometimes the UK can be from Ireland. A lot mm. of the time, people in the UK presume that it's very similar, and in some ways it is, but fundamentally, I think, yeah, it's it's quite different. And uh, yeah, it's um, hearing from people at home. It's it's a different experience to the one we're having here for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the it's the vaccine uptake has been affirming and positive and good. And every time, every I have encountered a couple of people who are kind of staunchly anti-vax, which has been a bit strange. But by and large, there is a sort of I feel a cultural agreement that's happening, which I really like about being here. Um, that we all would just like to get back to business, and um, I don't mean business in the shops and bars sense, more just people want to be out among each other and celebrate and exist again and I think that that vibe is quite powerful you know Mm. and the celebratory edge is really lovely and really something to behold as well so before we settle back into whatever pace we settle back into which I hope isn't as intense as the one was in March 2020 um I feel like there's a I don't know, like a testing of the water happening or something. Mm. Actually, thinking back about that, that dinner that we had, I came home for a work trip and I was staying in a Notions hotel and you very kindly came in and we had we had a a fancy dinner of Mm. cold meats and bits and things like that. But when we were having dinner, we had a really great conversation and we've actually only met, I think, in person a handful of times. But we always have great chats when we do. And uh, you said something that kind of stuck with me afterwards because I felt like it it really said a lot about who you are. Um, so we were talking about all kinds of stuff and then suddenly you kind of said, I get the impression that you and I don't have overlapping views on a lot of issues and a lot of stuff. But I think you're really interesting and um, I'm really I'm really interested in talking to you about what you do think and how you do see the world. And that was just... I think for me, um, that was quite a powerful moment in that I sort of felt instantly that we became friends when you said that. And maybe we had been before you said it, but it just shifted something. And I was like, that's such a wonderful thing to hear from somebody. Because a lot of the time, I think you can have, you can engage with people and have that sense that maybe you don't see the world in the same way in various respects. And sometimes a gate comes down when that happens Mm. and you suddenly feel kind of distant from that person or you'd lose interest in them or whatever. And I think it says an awful lot about you that you sensed that, I think probably quite accurately. And your response to it was curiosity and kindness as opposed to partisanship or a sense of, oh, this, 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 this person isn't my people. So I'm going to finish this fancy charcuterie and I'm going to go home. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I spend a lot of my life looking or had, I guess, until uh, comparatively recently, um, a lot of my life looking very specifically for my people. You know, it's something that I've been focused on very intensely from a very young age. And I never don't think I've I think for a long time I spent mostly during my teens and my early 20s, I was looking in all the wrong places. And I think I've come now, especially after the pandemic, to kind of comforting decision that I don't think I have any my people. So what that leaves me with is a curiosity and an interest in almost everybody. Mm -hmm. 
Um, obviously, you like like you just said, occasionally views are so different that a wall comes down. Um, but I don't feel like we're... I feel like we are different, but I don't feel like we're that different. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like we're both curious uh, people in the world. And that is the most important thing for me in another human, that they are interested (laughs) you know and interesting as a result of that that they're thinking all the time you know Mm -hmm. and that's I think what I've always liked about you is that you are uh not content with like a simple answer like you are curious you are thinking you are um you push back on things and I I don't know I just I think it's I think you're interesting (laughs) oh thanks yeah yeah Irish people shouldn't compliment each other like this. It's like so inappropriate. I appreciate that very much about you too. But one of the things about this podcast that prompted me to do it was a sense that in my work and personal life, I am lucky to meet people who are really individual. And obviously everyone is an individual, Hmm. but some people make choices in life or you know, undertake actions or hold beliefs or have a sort of intellectual approach to being alive that isn't particularly interested in consensus. And I think consensus is such a powerful tool for human beings that we do all feel an intense pressure to think what we're supposed to think or do what we're supposed to do in various respects in our life. Um, So I'm really interested in people who don't do that Everyone does it to some extent in various areas, but often in your work or in your personal life or even in just your outlook, you can sort of go the other way. And there are always costs to going the other way and, you know, eyebrows might raise or whatever. But you are, in the best possible sense, one of the most lovable weirdos I know. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) I I will take that. I will take that to the bottom of my heart. I think you're right about consensus, you know, and I, I feel like consensus is, and I, I guess in the time of the internet, it's uncommon. You know, I feel like we live very much in a time of dissent, even within agreeing parties or agreeing movements that we live in a rolling tide of dissent and that total consensus about anything is almost impossible to come upon with unless you are kind of operating in like extremism right um but for me moving away from i don't really know how other way to what what other way to be other than moving in the channel and the ways that i move in and I guess again a part of this is growing up and part of this is thinking back to the sort of tidal moment of of March 2020 and the life that I was trying to have before everything shut down there was a fair amount of my energy that I was spending on sort of just trying to fit in yeah even still even at my big age you know and um any last shred of energy that I would have spent on doing that is gone now (laughs) Um, I am very happy to just potter along at my own pace and with my career and with the art that I make and the culture that I participate in. I'm I'm kind of happy to just do my own thing now. And that might change in the future, um, but I'm happy to potter along at my own pace. And I know that that's something that people perceive as other-ish or different and that I do give off that lovable weirdo thing I, I know that about myself but um I guess the operative word there a bit is lovable not weirdo <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you can move gently while you're moving in your own way and that's what I 
what I think and what I hope to do. You can, but I think it still is fundamentally quite a radical choice mm. um, in a in a in a world, as you say, full of dissent. But I think the dissent makes it quite partisan. Everybody has their tribe and within various tribes, there's an expectation of what you must think or say or do or be. Mm. And to kind of decide to be an individual in that environment, even to do it gently, I think is quite a radical and interesting act. The other way is lonelier, mm. is my take. The other way is much, much lonelier. Um, in the kind of, I guess you and me both technically work in the same landscape, more or less. Online, capital O, mm-hmm. um, media slash media adjacent, capital M, capital A. Um, people who make things that other people receive. And also who kind of are caught in this like perpetual audience also of other people's creations and other people's lives. And going and doing the things that I do and making the things that I make on my own in the way that I do it doesn't mean that I'm impervious to long paralyzed sessions of staring at the Instagrams of people who are ostensibly almost alarmingly like me, you know, but maybe a little better, maybe a little. Oh, that's the danger place. You know, the really tricky one where you're not looking at the full Christian girl autumn thing, but you're, (laughs) you're kind of looking at people who are just a just a little bit different but an awful lot the same uh, because that's what the internet is designed to do right that's how they're funneling it down to you through the choices that you make they look at you and they show you people who are just like you but just kind of more expensive um <laughs> and uh there is i spend a fair amount of time i'd say like anybody else staring in fear at the choices that i've made or the choices i should make in order to achieve more success whatever that means Hmm. but I'm also rooted by a deep confidence that if I just keep vibing along at my own pace um I'm sure I'll be okay you know (laughs) yeah like like, especially within fiction do you know like if I just keep doing the things that I'm interested in if I keep chasing down the ideas that I'm chasing down and I'm obsessed by and passionate by then I'll be all right every so often my mom is just like would you not just write like a love story you know and she's right she's right would I not just do it you know and uh, the reality is that I can't I will get grumpy and bored and I I briefly worked at a, at a corporate level creatively for a year and it took me a year to recover from the stress of it that if I don't go and I do if I don't go and make the things I need to make um, I'll I'll be miserable do you know mm. so the path that I'm on, even if it is a little left of centre, is, like I said, less lonely and also, like, happier. Whoa, that's a big word. <laughs> it's a big word. Yeah. Well, I, I understand. I understand what you mean in that I think there's always more meaning in being authentic to whatever feels like an honest representation of your desires and your creativity. Um, even if there is kind of more praise and more money and uh, louder engagement for doing the, you know, the other thing, whatever yeah. that other thing might be. Yeah. And I think that people, A, can smell a fraud a mile away. So if I did start pretending, people would clock it pretty quick. Like, What's she doing? You know, and pretending is exhausting. Frankly, it's exhausting to the bones. Um, there are costs to every way of living. But I spent, 
you know, since my first publication when I was like a pissy little college student all the way up until now in my early 30s trying to be a person who got to write full time Mm. and I think it would be sort of an affront or like an affront I guess to the person I was and the person that worked so hard to get to a point where they got the immense wild privilege of getting to write for a living uh, and write what they want for a living Mm. you know that's very important there to sell that person out for popularity that's I don't I don't think I can do that like I said I tried for a minute and Mm. it was not good um and I'm glad I made that mistake early rather than much later yeah so uh, I mean I'm I'm really interested in obviously I I've known you for a few years now and I I know your work and how unique it is um and I've always been really impressed by how you how hard you work at being a writer because I think a lot of people have a very romanticized idea of you know someone in a, a Nora Ephron type office oh, gosh yeah you know tippy <laughs> tippy tapping away um and sort of casually going about quite a glamorous life yeah. and the words just coming and obviously you I know you hand write firstly yeah. rather oh. than typing out um but you for for me of all the writers I know your process seems to really typify the struggle and the hard hard work of creating worlds on paper Mm. so I mean where did that come from why what made you want to be a writer or when did you sort of figure out that you were one I have a very uncool a two-part uncool answer to this Mm -hmm. um I'm going to say something controversial about literature and my favourite books as chill as a child um, I know 100% that I wanted to be a writer when I read The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis and I know that C.S. Lewis sucks I know <laughs> I know the lion is Jesus Christ I know I did an English degree I have an understanding of culture and text I know that they are deeply laden with Christian allegory and I know that some parts of them not in a christian way but more in a fear of adulthood kind of way did set me up with some neurosis as a child 100% justice for Susan Pavensi but as a very small kid reading The Magician's Nephew um, it's sort of the lesser song story from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe vibe that's the one you always hear about but The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is not the first story in that series it's this Magician's Nephew um, story and there's a huge recurring set piece in those books which is called the woods between worlds where diggory and her name's gone out of my head now i haven't revisited in a second again when i go back again i'll be like more christian nonsense i'll see it throughout throughout eyes but the two kids who the book features move in and out of other worlds through these portals in the earth that look like pools and they go into it's a it's a forest the this woods between worlds and you can go into one pool and you'll witness a dying world. I have a very strong memory of one line in one world in particular, which describes the sun, which is sort of at the end of its life, uh, being like a fat orange in the sky, you know, like it was very visceral. And some other worlds have brand, some other pools have brand new worlds in them, which is how we get to witness the birth of Narnia. And um, that lodged in me 
really hard. Um, even as simple an image as hole in the ground leads somewhere interesting. <laughs> Tales all the time. Alice, you know, Wonderland. Like we've we've we do this. This is not an uncommon image, but something about the experience that I had reading that made me completely focused um, on the idea of trying to architect other places for myself and that's 100% where it started and where I became a writer secondarily I think I really became a writer when I was I hope it was 1927 or um, when The Legend of Zelda The Ocarina of Time came out which I got on my Nintendo 64 and I had a very that, that game is very verdant very leafly I've actually just finished an essay for The Stinging Fly about the world that the Zeldas are set in and myself as a hiker and the intersection between myself as a hiker in the Dublin Mountains versus myself as a person who plays video games and sits down and doesn't move at all and experiences <laughs> no physical strain while uh, going through these digital landscapes. Um, so experiencing that game at that age co combined with the sort of trail of the comet that was the magician's nephew is, I think, what really... I think there's very few people who end up making decisions as a child that they carry through on. Um, probably for very good reason um, <laughs> <laughs> not fully developed in any capacity um, but that was it and I, I do think that vo a vocation is a real thing I do believe in vocational work and that's where mine started I can kind mm. of point point pretty sharply to that it is interesting though because I think a lot of kids have very uh, life orienting moments of epiphany but as you say I think people don't stick to them in general because there's a there's a, a a sort of medley of other experiences that get blended into that soup, and by the time you you know knock out of adolescence, you you are... might still be a vegetarian, but like you probably <laughs> won't make any other serious calls, you know. Yeah. So what do you think it was about writing, and particularly the kind of construction of alternative realities that made that stuck with you through that incredibly destructive process of adolescence because I know it is a creative process it makes you a person who is heading into adulthood but it sort of deconstructs everything in childhood in conscious childhood anyway and, and transforms you into a new being yeah absolutely and as a teenager I was a fairly like below average student at a push um detention most weeks was never on time um wasn't outrageously bold but certainly wasn't like particularly like you know I, I can talk but I'm not academically a high high performer uh, I did read a lot and reading doesn't make you good at maths languages or any other things other than reading well it does it makes you good at being alive but it doesn't make you good at other things that you can do um you know in exam settings so I still read a lot as a teenager and uh I was kind of socially awkward and um not particularly well adjusted uh so I found that it was a really easy escape. It's a really great way to just switch, to exit, you know, to leave where you are and appear somewhat totally somewhere else. And that's something I learned through reading. And I learned through reading widely. Uh, not that widely. Now. I feel like I, I, do have, I do have kind of cultural gaps from being a teenager that I'm now kind of starting to fill in. Like I said earlier about my mother saying, would you not write, would you not just read a love story? I have finally gotten in the last couple of years around to reading excellent, beautifully written love stories and I enjoy them so much. But as a teenager, I was uh, a bollocks and a snob and only kind of read like 
books that would functionally impress lads I think is the best way to describe it um in the same way that lots of uh, teenage girls listen to or tolerate terrible music in order to fit in I probably tried to do that with the other culture that I absorbed as well um again like I said trying to fit in is much lonelier (laughs) than than not trying to fit in um but I found it very comforting and I did it for myself um I write kind of compulsively um if I'm left sitting down too long I will just write what's in my I'm a what's in my head like I'm a very dedicated diary keeper Mm. um and I find the and like I said I or like you said I do write everything by hand and I find that that act of direct transference of what is inside of your head to what is outside of your body is uh as natural to me as like walking and breathing it's a thing that I don't think very much about because I have always done it and it just feels like exhaling or something Sylvia Plath has a really good not to not to call Plath in <laughs> not to call in Plath while talking about being an unhappy teenage girl what's the <laughs> line uh god bless the internet let me see um that's intense yeah it's like oh the blood jet of poetry is that what she calls it she isn't um, known for intensity either I so mean, this is unusual go hard Sylvia you know like it's like writing is like the blood flow it will not be stopped I think I can't find the exact quote um I love poetry as well um maybe more than any other medium I think but uh yeah it just won't be stopped it just keeps coming so when it comes to writing fiction I find looking at the screen kind of stressful because that's where work lives or distracting because it's where the internet lives Mm -hmm. so when I'm trying to quieten out the world um a piece of paper is the most quiet place that makes a lot of sense also I don't want to leave you hanging out there on your own as a snobby adolescent I can enormously relate to what you're saying but my reasoning I think for for my engagement heavily in literature and poetry specifically you know the the hard to reach highbrow difficult stuff that I felt would make me clever and valuable Mm. I went for that specifically because it was a rejection of everything around me I didn't want to fit in it was my attempt to ensure that I fit in as little as possible make my life as difficult as it possibly could be (laughs) in a limerick you know public secondary school full of girls who made fun of me for you know reading Shakespeare at lunch man Um, all girls schools are a very particular corridor of hell aren't they like they're very (laughs) tricky like they're tricky worlds they're different now but I I feel like in the noughties they were very early noughties they were tricky there are tricky places to be but at the same time I was choosing to provoke you know in a sense I wanted the negative attention because I wanted to make sure that it was very clear that I don't belong here and that Mm. that that belief was centered in total and complete arrogance Uh, that's all teenagers are arrogant though do you know yeah. in, no matter what they're good at they're arrogant about it if they're super if they're super good looking like if, you, if you're the sort of leader of your social pack because you're symmetrical you're going to be arrogant about it if you're really athletic and you're like doing really well in sports you're going to be arrogant about it teenagers don't have the like self-regulation to not be dicks but isn't, isn't it so isn't it isn't it such a generic story though and I suppose of so many people who kind of were a teenager who were you know oriented their lives around this deep belief that I'm different misunderstood that you have to leave where you come from and come back 15 years later to realise that actually you appreciate where you came from and you were in fact oh my god were you in fact a dick oh you're such a little dick such a gay bag like you know absolutely 
like and I, and I probably would have been the very same I remember I read um, after seeing the BBC uh, adaptation which is fantastic by the way if you're ever in the humour for something that you might may not have seen before and is a, like a beautiful relic of like 2001 television um, the uh, BBC adaptation of a set of novels called Gormenghast by a writer called Mervyn Peake um, I remember seeing that at a particular age and being like obsessed doesn't start to cover it like obsessed obsessed by it like it's mostly filmed on a green screen it's super strange looking it's gorgeous very young Jonathan Reese Myers is in it Stephen Fry's in it Christopher Lee like loads of people are in it um, and they're based on these tomes of novels like if you think about Lord of the Rings where everything is green to the cost of any other ambience at all very foresty uh, everything in Gormenghast is grey and it's set in this really old castle, like a dynasty of a castle, and it's with this family, um, and a kitchen boy who murders and seduces his way up through the family to take over the dynasty. It's fucking like heavy stuff, like really heavy going. But that I used that book like a weapon. You know, I I thought that I was so smart because I was reading this obtuse, difficult work of fantasy that wasn't Lord of the Rings. Do you know? Mm-hmm. And we do try and differentiate it we're sort of experimenting as teenagers in everything one because you know you're doing everything for the first time but also in differentiating ourselves i don't really believe in good or bad teenagers unless they are doing murders do you know (laughs) by and large everybody is just sort of fumbling their way through and doing their best and even if they're dicks that's fine like that's totally fine yeah i think you need it's easier to forgive other people their dickishness than to forgive yourself Yourself. you just need a bit of distance between that version of you before you can look back and not no longer feel embarrassed by who you were back then and sort of feel anthropologically interested in who you were back then and be not just sympathetic but empathetic you know to kind of remember what it felt like to be that person and I got rid of I so I was a diary keeper but I got rid of all my diaries so whatever proximity I could have to how much of a dick I was as a teenager (laughs) is impossible now I shredded them all in like a little wheelie shredder in my bedroom um when I was 19 which again is also I think I started reading Virginia Woolf and I was like no one shall find a trace of me you know <laughs> <laughs> I was just such a dick again I love Virginia Woolf so much but like what a takeaway you know what an early takeaway is they published all of her letters even though she didn't want them published well I simply must destroy all written record of my life in case something happens to me I'm 19 you know <laughs> completely unhinged behaviour but I also did destroy almost everything uh, with the exception of a couple of particularly cute notebooks which are not really you know, nothing of kind of value is in them, but they're just aesthetically teenager and cute. But mm. I got rid of everything. I used to write on A4 pages, which I would fold into eight and then file in shoe boxes. You fit a lot of A4 pages folded into eight in shoe boxes. And it's six or seven of these shoe boxes in my wardrobe, and I destroyed everything. Interesting. Like, that's years. That's years of a life. Just, I, like I said, I wrote compulsively. It's probably very boring even to look back on. For me, I would have been like, what is what is this but um yeah I got rid of it all uh so whatever um empathy I should be fostering for my teenage self it definitely won't be done with any uh I guess archive to help Hmm. I tried I tried to be a diary keeper many times in my youth and interestingly I couldn't I started and did not continue many diaries just because I constantly felt sort of harangued by this vague awareness that everything I was writing down was performative and I didn't know what I wanted to say. Wow. I, you really strike me as a diary writer. It's That's so interesting. 
I suppose I turned into one as an adult yeah. because I've written columns and stuff like that and I've accidentally become one. But there's something about writing in a diary that just felt every time I tried to do it, it came out as someone I didn't recognise. Mm. Someone I was reading or someone I was seeing on TV or someone I was trying to borrow because I, I just knew I didn't know who I was. Like and you, it uh, became this conduit for other teenage girls. <laughs> maybe, yeah. A different but, voice. Yeah, but th- th- I think that experience was so jarring for me and I was so bad at committing to it. At the time, I thought it was because I couldn't, I couldn't write and that it was a, you know, a, some kind of failing in me. But, and maybe I'm warping it in retrospect, but I think now when I look back at it that I couldn't do it because it really struck in a true way an understanding that I did not know who I was and mm. that was very terrifying. Yeah. I didn't have a voice to write anything down with. And there's nowhere more frightening than being confronted with that than in the silence of your of a page that is facing you. Like that is <laughs> scary stuff. I, I I get you. I do. Um, I feel like my own. I kind of I loved being a kind of a poncy teenage girl writing in my diary. You know, I thought I was great. Um, but now there's. But now we shall simply never know what was written there. So <laughs> who knows? Who were you writing for out of interest when you wrote those those diary entries? I'm interested. Was it for you or was it for someone theoretical? I think theoretically, especially with the aggressive filing that I used to do of them, I was writing for myself in the future. Mm. I was always desperate to not be a teenager anymore. I spent most of my teenager teenage years wishing my life away, like ready to get out of the school I was in, get out of the estate that I was in, just get away from everyone and everything. Um, I was clawing at every possible opportunity to be different and figure out who I was. And I feel like the act of writing in a diary for me, even still sometimes is like doing very prolonged equations of trying to work out who you are. Like I have these components and what if I multiply them together or divide them against each other or compare them to previous notes? Like it's a study, like I'm working things, I'm practicing, I'm working things out. And I think that's what I've always done is detail situations that I've gone through um, recently, you know, that day, pick them apart pick them apart what would I do differently next time like it's like I write a lot like I'm not just like talking one page it's reams so um a little bit of it is I guess like a computer with a slow processing speed do you know Mm. like I'm trying to work out what's just happened so I can go into tomorrow with an understanding of what's happened the previous day and I definitely did a lot of that so in terms of a reader uh I think I've always been talking to myself at a different time Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of foresight in that and a lot of conjecture. Um, and also, I suppose, an interesting presumption that future you will value the thoughts of past you, which future you can't me know. put them through my mass shredder. <laughs> future me, future me destroyed them. So thanks, future me, you know. And uh, now what I do instead of destroying things is I sellotape them shut and I put them in a box. That's wise. Yeah. Do you I'm, ever go back in? Oh, absolutely not. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, what I will do, what I, what I have got the, the amazing privilege of, and I'm in the process at the moment, I'm a bit late, um, but I'm in the process of uh, sorting my archive for a donation to the National Library here in Ireland um, because I've handwritten kind of six novels, I think, at this point. And when I, I'm in the redrafting process, I print and I hand annotate. So... I have boxes and boxes of paper. <laughs> like I'm looking at them over the edge of the screen. And I'm like, tower of judgment of my own drafts. And the National Library asked me to donate them and my zines for 
to be like a living collection which is astounding frankly um i do think i get the option to seal them until i'm dead which is <laughs> complicated uh, and a weird thing to think about but like also a cool thing to think about so cool so cool you know um but what i have to do is go through my handwritten notes and extract the bits that are objectively mad diary stuff and what i'm willing to enter into the archive and what what i feel will be of use to other people and what i feel is just mad hmm. you know so that's been strange and i don't really like going back through my old notes because they're like they're dead to me now they're they're like limbs i don't use anymore i've, I've used all that that's gone yeah we're into the next one now but going back through them has been really something like i've grown a lot um which is nice to feel nice to watch yourself improving or becoming more curious at least um thinking harder you mm. know so that's that is something interesting to go through one last time before it gets taken away from me forever yeah which again such a privilege and cannot believe they want me in there you know um but I'm more than happy because I do a lot of writing in that building or I used to do a lot of writing in that building in the reading room of the National Library um, because it's stunning objectively and um, it's just got a lovely energy and a lovely vibe and I wrote a lot of other words for smoke in that room so it's really cool to give it back. I want I wanted to talk to you about science fiction I, I guess it sounds almost like an insulting question so let me contextualise it before oh, I no. give it because questions about definitions I think are sometimes inherently silly but I remember the first philosophy paper I ever wrote as a first year at university I put a dictionary definition in it and I did really badly in that essay and uh, I don't even remember what it was on but I basically appeal I appeal to a dictionary definition to explain what something is and obviously that is a bullshit cheat that I didn't understand back Wikipedia then. Wikipedia defines yes. this as. Yeah. <laughs> because essentially, or sometimes, you know, if you're like uh, back in the day when I engaged in any debate on Twitter, I can't really be arsed anymore. You'd occasionally get someone throw a dictionary definition at you. And obviously what they're doing when they do that is appealing to authority and they're saying consensus has decided that this concept refers to this, that this word you know, calls forth from the ether a cluster of ideas. Words are... mean things. Here's some <laughs> language. Twitter sucks, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when obviously in a sort of a, in a philosophical context, in order to define what something is, you need to go off on a on a careful and considered sort of intellectual mission of exploration and, and you know, figure out what it is and justify why that's what it is. It's, mm. you know, you don't get a concept handed to you. You figure out what it is yourself. So yeah. for you, what is science fiction? Wow. What Literally, what is it? It's stories which discuss being alive through use of fantastic, scientific, futuristic, uh, monstrosity, um, etc. Further Venn diagram of the strange and unusual extended metaphors in order to tell the truth about being alive. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good definition. But what do you think separates science fiction from fantasy? And I ask for a specific mm. reason that will become clear later. I think things like science fiction, fantasy, speculative uh, literature, horror, there are these branched genres that have interchangeable themes and motifs and tropes, I suppose, for the want of a better word, which interlink what I think of science fiction my, other people might not necessarily think of exactly as science fiction they might say that it's horror they might say it's speculative there's a lot of quibble over 
uh, genre definition rather I prefer genre blur fantasy itself I feel like spans through artificial history fantasy intones a kind of a dungeons dragons swords sorcery a lot of big sleeves you know that's not necessarily true but there are tropes of a genre that fantasy moves through which are distinct from science fiction I think science fiction can have a but both can have a tighter route in reality they just use a different style of metaphor I think magic as a metaphor can be used in both fields in just a slightly different shape it all really kind of comes down to semantics I think a little bit where fantasy magic is one shape and shade of magic science fiction magic is one slightly different shape and shade of it it's kind of down to the detail um which will feel different to every reader that's such a tricky question isn't it actually the more you think about it yeah yeah i mean because uh, to an extent they do exist sort of on a spectrum but not oh, really they're cousins a... they're cousins like yeah. you know not a chronological spectrum you know it's no. um but yeah i mean I, I rejected both genres outright for until i was in my 20s out of complete ignorance and bigotry i was just like no it's you know, fantasy is essentially... Nerd stuff. It's for nerds. <laughs> yes. But I th- I did think that, but it was kind of, you know, You're like... You're not wrong. This... Like, yes, <laughs> it is, you know. It is, for me, it was in my ignorance looking in from outside. I was just saying, thinking, you know, that the sort of fantasy to science fiction spectrum essentially starts with hose, H-O-S-E, and ends in, you know, space shop, uh, spaceships and steampunk. And it's just, for me, that was kind of a complete failure to recognize as you say that that it is it is simply symbolic it is it is metaphorical i was focusing on the sort of delivery mechanism for the information as opposed to the information itself and was dreadfully embarrassed to discover isn't that the medium is a messenger thing right do you know what i mean like you can't receive what it's holding if the thing that is holding it is not interesting to you and I feel like that about lots of different kinds of literature where I kind of can't feel it. And that's okay too. Taste comes down to a lot. Taste is completely subjective. And I guess now that sci-fi is kind of mainstream with the all-rounded governance of the Marvel franchise and what have you, but if spaceships and things like that are profoundly off-putting to you, then there is absolutely no way that you can go into that spaceship, be transformed and come back changed and better, which is what art should do you know really good art i agree but in a sense i don't in that i'm i'm powerfully not interested in in sort of space conceptually and all of that stuff but when i finally i mean i'm now a massive star trek fan and have been hey, for a number of years star trek's great yeah yeah, yeah but so I, nice. I don't care about space or the genre of space but i felt like such a feckin ass when i watched it and i was like oh every single episode is a philosophical thought experiment. All of it. Oh yeah, it's about philanthropy. It's not philanthropy. It's about a. It's a pacifism and like ca- like it's it's lovely. I only I only watched. Um, I'm not a big old Star Trek head at all, but I watched a bit of the Next Generation during lockdown, and I was just like, "One, this show is remarkably horny. Like everybody, <laughs> like really, they are truly just planet hopping and doing loads of sex. Good on them. Um, and two, um, it's so humanitarian." and nice and kind and curious there you go it's about exploring other civilizations and asking questions and healing i think a lot of we what we kind of negate when we talk about science fiction and is that often these metaphors can be used to talk about healing Hmm. and uh, i think star trek can often do a really gorgeous job of that yeah i mean my my sort of my favorite aspect of it there are different seasons and you know different ah yeah 
Mini chips. Some yeah. some are better than were better than others, but for me the thing that I loved about Star Trek and the reason I hate the current season is that I feel like uh, or the current iteration it, it's the idea that for me Star Trek was mo- is mostly not a commentary on our current climate no, it no, is no, a no. it is a sort of a casting forward to what it could be and what we mm. could be and there's as you say there's something profoundly hopeful and beautiful in that and and I feel like the modern iteration of it sort of grounds us back here where things are shite and we're all very flawed and, and you know there's massive division between people and stuff like gender is important whereas the whereas the other Star Trek has figured all that out already and it is a better kind of humanity so for you what is science fiction for you then as a device not in terms of the definition but what do you th- where do you think that line is between using it as a commentary on the reality we live in and postulating an alternative one that's completely mm. unrelated that's a great question when i wrote sparing vampires that was what i was hoping for it was to build this just post-apocalyptic ireland not a dystopian one but a dublin after the worst had happened uh, it, it was it was a pandemic <laughs> just as a heads up <laughs> that's what did it unfortunately um in this case but trying to build a world which had processed and completed ostensibly all of the difficulties that we are having now freed me up in some ways to tell a different kind of a story and build different characters in obviously they still struggle with the things that we struggle with because they're, they're people but making the world um, and the society overtly equilateral when it comes to queerness and things like that was a deep relief for me I got to project a hopeful society even if the world itself was intrinsically broken and scarred by apocalyptica I suppose so that was a, it was a pleasure to do it also let me look back on the current day that we live in there's three rules in Spare and Vampires which are laid out on the front page three simple rules of the world and one of them is that um, all code is blasphemy so it, it, there's a the conflict that brought about the pandemic um, in the story was a religion versus computers because I do believe the two are intrinsically linked and also diametrically opposed Um, I feel like the closest people get to talking to God now is putting tweets into the world you know or some equivalent you can just say what you think and feel about your life into this box and someone will, will reply which is I think all anybody has ever wanted when they pray is someone to answer back and so I'm really interested in that space um, not because it has a clear answer but more because it has none um, and it also just is something that resonates really strongly with me and I kind of once something gets stuck in my head I kind of have to unstick it and that's what Spare and Vampires was um, but I got to use the relics of today as contraband as the ancient and the beautiful as something from before the end it's sort of a running daft punk thing of all the things there's a running daft punk thing throughout the book because they're you know part of their fiction of their music is that they're robots and uh, using little pieces of today as beyond antique the deep old is something really pleasurable because it makes me it made me at the time look differently at the things in the media that we have now yeah so that was I guess writing it's calling writing fun is complicated sometimes it's loads of fun but that was an interesting world to build because um, it was just positioned slightly differently and more hopefully with other words for smoke other words for smoke is more about irish history and about who we are as a very uh, patriarchal um ireland i suppose it's also about religion 
Um, and the book that I'm working on at the moment is set currently. The only time I've ever written about the deep future is Baron Van Parts, but with the other work that I make, I try to invoke monstrosity and the books all have this it's like that lovely sesame street book is there a monster at the end of this book you know with grover there are monsters in all of those books and using monstrosity as a metaphor is something that i am quicker to do than using projections of the future because i think i understand more about monstrosity than i do about anywhere human civilization is going you know Mm. um what draws you to it do you think like I said earlier about metaphor I think that for a very very long time human beings have been telling each other stories about ghosts and about monsters of different kinds as a means of translating our fears and concerns into something other than us uh, like a method of expulsion or exorcism and I am really interested in that I also once I get a pic like I said once I get a picture stuck in my head I have to puzzle it out for example with the other words for smoke um the picture was of a wall full of very particular wallpaper i had as a teenager and a face emerging from the wallpaper and when that picture landed with me i built the novel out and around it i think that building monsters and people who deal with them or bargain with them is a helpful way for me to think about the problems that we have here and that I have in the world. It's like a translation process, a bit like the diary keeping. It's like running long equations out. It's an unpuzzling of things. Hmm. Do you find that the monsters you create have sort of a common essence? Yeah, they're um, actually, that's really funny you should ask that the the book that I'm just finishing at the moment, um, which is, Unfortunately, I hate to tell you, set one third on a spaceship. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy it. I've, I'm yeah. converted. I'm converted. Um, the rest of it is very much set on Valencia Island. And there is a monster. And there was a pass of this book where there, the monster was really only a metaphor. And in the redraft that I recently did, the monster very much became real. And she is almost explicitly a cousin of the monster from, spare, uh, from Other Words for Smoke. And the book that I'm halfway through drafting has a plant in it and he is part of that pantheon or that family as well i'm very interested in interlinking the creatures together so stephen king has this thing that he it's one line again it's one line kind of just jumps out at you and, and buries itself it's in on writing where he talks about what a haunting is and um a haunt is a place where animals go to feed so a haunted house surely then is a site of feeding or a haunted arcade or a haunted uh, flower shop. It's a site where things go to eat. And I'm interested in what eats us mm. and what we willingly give up to that. That is interesting, especially as you say, because the monsters are sort of metaphorically created by collective unwillingness to address or engage with or be honest about certain things so the idea that that uh, artifice comes back and might swallow us whole is Mm. very Irish very (laughs) Irish but like also within the world of the book the monsters are real and tangible and legit in my making of them I see them and I know who they are and I know what they want and I know what they're hungry for but they within the worlds of the novels they are real and they're there like they're part of the walls they're in the sink they're 
you can touch them and the characters who they live with believe that they're there as well their reality is shared and agreed and also in these stories the monsters don't get defeated there's no neat endings some people kind of win and some people kind of lose i think i'm very interested in moral grayness and i'm interested in while it is never as satisfying to totally heal any of your characters i'm interested in leaving things open and that's that's something that i've been criticized for before and that's totally fine but i love i hate watching the endings of tv series or reading the last book in a series i very rarely will finish something i love because i wanted to continue to live in perpetuity and with my own storytelling i love dropping an enormous chasm at the end or not resolving everything for everybody because even though these stories are effectively speculative or or fantastic in in their telling they are also about people and i don't know about you but in my experience nothing is ever neat you know nothing ever gets wrapped up 100 percent. so i'm interested in exploring a moral grayness and a neutrality rather than and then the monster got defeated and they all lived happily ever after absolutely is not how any of the stories i find myself writing end yeah in some ways i think it's a kinder way to end a piece of work anyway because as you say i mean for for most people i think reading is what it was for you and i as teenagers it is escape and it's a portal yeah yes but but when when i'm returned back to where i started you know back to my bedroom age 14 or back to my wherever I am now I don't like an incredibly jarring contrast between the sort of holistic positivity of how the piece of art just ended and the greyness of the world I'm landed back into I think it's gentler to settle me down into what I know in a sense which is something incomplete and something Mm -hmm. that never entirely feels like it's going to satisfy you in a way that has no questions attached Yeah, I'm interested in that, you know, and I'm interested in leaving people with questions rather than with answers because the art that I love or the the TV shows and the movies and the like the texts, even the video games that I love, leave me with enormous questions about being alive and about myself. And that mystery, not like this is a mystery story who'd done it. Mystery is something else. Mystery is something more harder to put your finger on and I've I've spent this summer reading masters of plot and masters of like I've read all of Paul Tremblay's work he's a horror genius and um, like in one fell swoop or I loads of Victor Laval in one fell swoop who just does if if you're interested in reading a really brilliant story the changeling completely turned my brain inside out and both of these writers have an amazing sense of implementing mystery a sense of mystery tiny questions tiny unknowns which leave you as a reader with more questions about the world and more curiosity about the world than you went in with i read to study but i don't study to learn the answers or to be right i read to have bigger better questions about things and i think that's for me what fantasy science fiction speculative literature horror what they do with their metaphors is they make me more curious about the world because they use these big shapes big colours and they ask the questions differently. Yes, I, I completely agree. And in some ways, I think particular. Well, I, I, I read both fantasy and science fiction, but I think 
sort of overcoming my own idiocy around them and and learning to enjoy them and find them, you know, to be really so intellectually valuable helped me in a number of ways. Because when I went to university first, I studied English literature and philosophy. And for me at school, English was the thing that I was so passionate about. And it took me a few years after leaving to realise that that was because it was the only forum in which I was allowed to think or encouraged to think and express mm. myself. It wasn't actually that I love analysing literature. It was that I like to think and discuss ideas. And that's why philosophy kind of suited me on a much deeper level. And I found studying English at university quite um, stressful and limiting because there are, were so many sort of philosophical meta narratives that I felt were very rigidly applied. You know, like I remember being in a seminar, we had been reading some Oscar Wilde and all the tutor wanted to talk about was his sexuality. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but what about the book? I want to talk about the book. You know, I want to talk about the ideas in the book. I don't care about his sexuality. Obviously, it's important and it's relevant and those conversations should be had. But it always felt like the way that we were encouraged to look at poetry and literature was through the lens of power in society specifically in relation to things like race and gender and those are important and interesting but they're not the whole picture so for me philosophy felt like it gave more of a whole picture but it also then led me into a rejection of literature as a as a mode of transformation which was also mm. wrong very wrong and it took me kind of coming back to fiction specifically through science fiction and fantasy that made me realise that that transformation, which I haven't had personally experienced so many times reading a work of fiction or going to see a play or watching a film, is just as philosophically valid as, you know, reading, I don't know, Hegel and wading through that, you know, dry, barren wasteland of ideas to come to find the valuable ideas in there, that these things are absolutely as valuable as each other. One is not better than the other. No, they're just different shapes and they're different kinds of portals, which intrinsically do lead us to the author, which is always a big question about where the author lands with the work. Um, and as a writer, I often hope that myself as a writer is as far away from the book itself as humanly possible. My belief is that once it has a spine, it's not mine. But I think, again, there are always funny exceptions. That's not a rule that you can't bend in terms of authorial intent and who the author is and what means what. But I do consider fiction to be a portal to other lives and other experiences. And I do think that it has made me endlessly more curious. But the language of science fiction and the language of speculative fiction is sort of a unifier, you know? Doesn't really matter who we are. We're all sort of playing with the same set of instruments. We're all elevating reality. We're all solving problems that we perceive. We're all asking questions that we struggle with. We're just using these strange and unusual answers to try and tell a story. I've been reading uh, recently, a sh I read a really brilliant short story collection um, called Smoking in Bed by uh, Marina Enriquez. And she's a fantastic short story writer. Um, this book was recommended to me by a speculative slash science fiction writer called Kirsty Logan, whose work is unbelievable. And she's doing a 31 days of horror by women um, at the moment and has some incredible recommendations and there's a short story in that collection that I was breathless it's told in the uh, we um, in the plural first person I guess um, and it's about teenage girls who hang out with this older woman and one of their school friends who's super hot starts sleeping with the older woman and they hate her then 
and they all go down to this quarry they break into this big quarry to swim but it's dangerous because they've heard rumors that these wild dogs will get set upon you by the owner of the land and a lot of it is about the body and about jealousy and about teenage girls being brutal as they are and there's this moment in the short story where the older woman sends them on a mission to swim across the quarry to this grotto that has a virgin mary in it and i was <laughs> a huge scene um in the book i've just finished features a grotto with a mary in it other words for smoke heavily fe- i love the virgin mary i find i find her and the mythos in and around her um, I'm, it's stuck I, I'm working it out I'm just going to keep doing it until I find the answer I don't know what it is I like her you know um, but seeing her so specifically appear for Enriquez in this novel, in this short story I was like I've never met this woman I may never meet her but in this image we are linked hmm. in this question we are linked in this invocation we are linked we are both, t- and her Mary does something real bad. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> it's fantastic what she does with the Mary, which is completely different to what I do. But I was just like, oh, look, here we are. Here we are. So I know I said at the very beginning that I find it quite tricky and have always found it quite tricky to find my tribe. But I think with books, I don't actually need to really know them because I know there are people out there writing strange things that are like me. Mm. Even if I only find out that they are like me through the images that they use and the way in which they ask questions about the world. Mm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a way in which really good literature continues to serve you because obviously the kind of our teenage dick selves who we talked about oh. sitting in the room, like I remember being 14 and my mother just saying, would you not, it was summer and I just sat in my room for the entire summer reading books. She's like, would you not, don't you have any friends? And I was like, I don't think so. I haven't talked to anyone in a while. <laughs> like, they probably don't want to see me. I just want to read books. Um, but the service that, that those books did me, regardless of the, you know, the reason I selected them and my own sort of fallibility uh, and closing myself off the way that I've talked about to various genres of literature that have become so important and I see so much value in now, they did connect me to people who made me better at thinking and living and being and they still do that for me now so in a sense I did spend that particular summer completely on my own but I didn't yeah I spent it well (laughs) going through the different worlds that's what it is it's not that it's time well spent (laughs) yeah yeah you just have to figure out what world you want to live in and then you can kind of start (laughs) yeah I think that's probably the end of the episode it feels like it doesn't it yeah, we've gone we've gone loads of places we've done loads of journeys yeah. i think we have righted all the wrongs of the world i think we've solved science fiction you know <laughs> <laughs> well i i mean i think it's nice to figure out what what you believe it to be because yeah. I, we have so many conversations with people in life where you're sort of agreeing or disagreeing on on something but nobody ever takes the time to check if they're talking about the same thing and they almost never are so mm. it's interesting i also think it's worth being flexible i don't often believe myself to be a cold authority on anything i if i read tomorrow or if some had a conversation tomorrow which led me to a completely different view on what science fiction was i would be open to it Mm. i don't really operate in a world of hard lines of right and wrong when it comes to defining bits of art you know Mm -hmm. i'm always open to other answers and other i haven't thought about like for somebody again who has spent the guts of four years writing a novel wherein the spaceship is the metaphor 
it hadn't even really occurred to me that technically this is a piece of science fiction mostly it's just a story about a young woman who does something wrong Hmm. and I hadn't stopped to think how do I define this maybe then maybe if I did think about that a bit more I'd be better at uh, PR bits and things but it is important to stop and ask tricky questions so that when you go on and ask more questions your questions are better yeah yeah I I think as well the minute you start to delineate something or define it in a way that is inflicted on anyone else Mm, you real suck no you way. institute yourself <laughs> you, you make yourself a gatekeeper and that's a cop a f- laura you make yourself <laughs> yeah, a cop <laughs> it's a public role then you're telling other people not just what you are but what they're allowed to be and oh, where's no. the fun in that you know that sucks no it does no yeah no. <laughs> we have enough of that to deal with i think in general in media in publishing in art don't need any more of that no less of that more that flexibility <laughs> yeah more flexibility absolutely okay I've really enjoyed this. I knew I would, yeah, but I have. Yeah, me too. Good vibes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, Greg. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Second Self. This podcast was edited by Billy Adamson and JJ Hadari. Music was written by Team. <laughs>